Well, after Sunday's statistics on belief in heaven that I shared, if you were here, you heard that, some of the uh, interesting stats and how belief is changing in America regarding heaven. But I wasn't surprised to get up Monday morning and read that there's a 2015 Pew Research study. You can look at it, look it up if you'd like to at pewforum.org. Just released yesterday. And here are some more statistics for you. 70.6%, that's 173 million Americans, claim to be Christians. Now that sounds good, except that that's down from 78% in 2007. That's an 8% drop in 8 years. 1% per year. Since 2007, that is those Americans claiming to be Christians is on the downswing, or according to this poll. Non-Christian faith grew from roughly 4.7% in America to 5.9%. So it has increased, and Islam leads the way with that. Hinduism is right behind it in that increase. Unaffiliated people, or what are called nuns, and we've actually talked about and seen some surveys and some studies about those who are nuns, not in UN, but in O-N-E-S, nuns, someone who say, what is your faith? They say none. That unaffiliated group has grown from 16.1% to 22.8%. That's a 6.7 increase, 6.7% increase in the last eight years of people who consider themselves in that category. Now that includes those who believe in nothing in particular. They went from 12% to 15%. And atheists and agnostics who went from 4% to 7%. Now if you're, if you're kind of adding this up or even jotting these statistics down, and again, go look them up on your own, but if you're adding them up, what it seems to suggest is that the percentage of Christians in America is on the downswing and the percentage of non-belief in America or alternative belief in America is on the upswing. Now there's some good news in this, and that is that within the larger category of Christianity in America, those who identify themselves as evangelical actually rose from 59 million to 62 million, that is 34 to 35 percent in the last seven to eight years. So there's been an increase, while the overall, what you would call Christendom, the larger Christianity, including all different realms of Christianity, while that decreased, the number of evangelicals actually increased. Among evangelicals, we also have noted, and and surveys are telling us, that church attendance is higher now than it's been in 40 years. So that's a good thing. Among evangelicals. Why are the numbers down? What's going on with all this? Catholicism, Protestantism, and mainline denominationalism are down. Evangelicalism or those who are unaffiliated with a particular denomination but are just going to a, uh, an independent church, is up. I think what the trend lines tell us there is very simply people are looking for authenticity over tradition. People are kind of tired of the same old thing that doesn't really seem to be working, and so they're seeking to find what is real and what is true. Which is why we're seeing Bible teaching churches grow while a lot of the more traditional churches that are following more traditional paths are not growing and or are losing in membership. And in addition to that, those previously identified as nominal Christians, that is those who went to church but really didn't have faith, now they're self-identifying as nuns. 
which I guess is more honest. No more just sitting in church and pretending. They're saying, look, I don't believe this anyway, so I'm not going to waste my time getting up on a Sunday morning. What all of this tells us, bottom line, is that clearer lines are being drawn. They're more definite than they've been in previous years. More obvious as to who believes, who does not believe. Ed Stetzer, in a USA opinion column this morning, responding to the Pew Research Study, had this to say, and I agree with him. He said, Christianity isn't collapsing, it's being clarified. Churches aren't emptying, rather those who were Christian in name only are now categorically identifying their lack of Christian conviction and engagement. It's nothing new to the Lord. You see, on the very night of Jesus' betrayal, on the eve of that last Passover, there was an 8.3% drop among Jesus' closest followers. (laughs) One out of 12 stopped following Jesus that night. One out of 12, Judas had already left him. And after that fact, as he looked around at the disciples, at the apostles, the eleven who were remaining, and they were troubled, and they were concerned, and they looked worried, and Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. And let me encourage you, when you see the statistics and the surveys and the polls and the forums come out in the newspaper, don't let your heart be troubled. We're not seeing anything that God has not already foreseen and told us about. We're not shocked by the news, the information that's out there in the world today. Do not let your heart be troubled. You see, Jesus knew who were His disciples on that night, as well as He knew who would be His disciples even to this very night. And He's about to explain that in John chapter 15. But let's pick up at the end of John 14. Beginning in verse 30, He's speaking. He said, I will not speak much more with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. We talked about that, Satan. And has nothing on me, or nothing in me. And Satan was at that moment coming in Judas, possessing Judas, coming after Jesus, leading the Roman guard and leading the Jewish leaders to go get Jesus. He was on the way, and Jesus says, he's got nothing on me. In other words, he will be arrested, he will be tried unjustly, he will be crucified absolutely and perfectly innocent, which is good news for us. Because we are not innocent. We deserve to be in the place where He was. That is on the cross. But He took our place. Satan's got nothing on me. Verse 31, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Or literally, even so, I do as the Father commanded me. Get up and let us go from here. How does the world know, not other Christians, not those who may be close to you, but how does the world at large know if you love God or not? And Jesus tells us, when you do as the Father has commanded, that's when they know. They know you belong to Jesus when you do like Jesus. They know you belong to the Father when you follow the Father, when you do what He commanded. And so Jesus, at this point, obediently began the walk across the Cadron Valley. That's, by the way, if you're a note-taker, I'm going to give you eight points to walk through chapter 15. Uh, That's number one. The walk across the Kedron. It's significant here, and it's worth even noting in your Bibles that from chapter 14 to chapter 15, as we shift into chapter 15, they now have gotten up and left the upper room, and they are on their way to that garden on the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane. The garden that is called the Olive Press. 
Jesus leads the eleven now through the streets of Jerusalem and down into the valley and across to that quiet garden. And as they walked, they would have had, and if you've done that walk or made that walk, you, you know, you would be able to look back and have a glorious view of the temple. Oh, it's not there now. Now there's just a big golden zit sitting up there on top of the <laughs> temple mount. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> the big dome is up there, and you can look back and see that. Um, but they would have looked back and seen the temple. And on the front of the temple, what Josephus tells us was Herod's personal donation was a massive golden vine that wrapped around the pillars and around the front of the entrance of the temple itself. It had huge golden, solid gold, mind you, vine and gold grape clusters, and each one of these grape clusters hanging down were the size of a man, about five to six feet in length. And so they would walk across this valley. On that night, they could look back. Josephus also tells us that in the moonlight, and remember, this is Passover Eve, so the moon would be full over Jerusalem. And in the shining moonlight, they could see sparkling there that golden vine. Josephus said you could see it from a mile away, which would be about on the top of the Mount of Olives. That beautiful vine. It's the perfect backdrop. For what Jesus now says. It's the seventh and final I am statement of Jesus. John 15.1 I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do a few things. You can do, you know, part of the job. Apart from me you can do nothing. Zero, zilch, nada, goose egg. Apart from me, nothing at all. Hey, statistics are no, the branches that remain in the vine connected to Jesus are the ones that bear fruit. And it's all because of number two, the work of the vine dresser. Now as they make this walk across the Cadron, looking back, seeing that, and Jesus begins to explain that that's not the vine. I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. Be connected to me. Why? Because of, secondly, the work of the vine dresser. Look back at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I spent years as an associate pastor, a youth pastor in, in different churches serving before we started the bridge, before coming here. And one of the things that I, I got to be honest with you, I just got tired of hearing, was we need to see more fruit in your ministry. I mean, it made me want to go to Safeway, you know? I'm going to buy that guy a big basket of fruit and get him off my back, you know? I want to see more fruit in your ministry. And, and we had, I have one senior pastor in particular who his definition of fruit was more people. Fruit is people. People is fruit. Now, listen, and and you know my heart of evangelism. You know my desire to see lost people saved. You know that. 
But fruit is not people. Well, some people are fruity, but fruit is not people. When Jesus says, I want you to bear fruit, this is not what He's talking about. It's not just numeric growth in a church. What is fruit? Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And I believe that is the fruit that Jesus is talking about that He wants us to bear. Why? Because as we bear that kind of fruit, people want to come and feed on righteousness. People want that sweetness. So yes, people will be drawn to Jesus, drawn to the Lord as we bear precious fruit. And by the way, when Paul writes of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, it's not nine fruits. It is not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. What does that mean? The fruit of the Spirit is, and then he lists nine things. So it sounds like nine different kinds of fruit. Well, some say love is the noun, and the rest are verbs. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, as expressed in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That doesn't work, because if you look at the Greek, they're all nouns. Every single word is the fruit of the Spirit. How is that possible? (laughs) And that sounds unnatural. Exactly. It's supernatural. It is the work of the Spirit. One fruit with the flavor of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's something that, you know, Willy Wonka may have come up with. You know, you remember watching the, the movie, either one of the, the old one or the new one, of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the gum? And Baruka Salt pops the gum into her mouth. She goes, mmm, oh yeah, that's roast beef. Oh, that's good. Oh, I, I feel the gravy going down. I, I'm not getting it exactly right. but Oh, and now mashed potatoes and butter. Mmm, she's just chewing this little piece of gum. And all these flavors are coming out of this one piece of gum. Gives you kind of a lame idea of, of what Paul expressed so much better. The fruit of the Spirit is all of this. That is the fruit. And it's why in verse 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing, because the fruit of the Spirit is a supernatural work that God does in your life when you're connected to the vine. Be disconnected to the vine, you can you can have you can pretend some of these fruits, but it's not really organic, you know? You can be processed fruit, you can be like fruit candy. But the fruit of the Spirit is a supernatural thing. And so Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's too much stress in the vineyard of the church. There's too much fretting over fruit. Aggravation among the grapes. People stressing about how to do what we have to do to get people to do what we're doing. Now you've got to pay close attention tonight because we're going to talk about the doing of the thing and it is vitally important to our faith. But the harder we work, the more we're going to mess it up. The more we soak in prayer, the more we focus on connection to Jesus, the more we listen to Him, the more He's going to accomplish in a supernatural way and we will see the fruit of the Spirit sprouting up all over the place. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Colossians 1.27 Paul said, God willed to make known to you what is the riches of this glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. 
And that's the value of Jesus when He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we're connected to Him and He is flowing into us. His Spirit is working through us, empowering us, charging us up. I love that this is the last I am statement of Jesus. The final one. That's significant. Among all the other I am statements, he lands on this one on the night just before he's about to depart and he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I am your connection. So remain connected to me. But I want you to think about this. The second point here is not the work of the vine. It's the work of the vine dresser. And the vine dresser, Jesus very clearly points out, is the Father. If you read the work of the vine dresser in verse 2, without context, without understanding, it sounds like Jesus is saying that God is either going to purge us or prune us, and neither one sounds too good to me. I don't really want to be purged. Okay, If I'm connected, if I'm in Jesus, He says, if you are uh, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, so if I'm having a bad week, He takes away. Purge! Snip! Gone! That doesn't sound very good. But, here's the good news. Uh And every branch that's bearing fruit, that's doing what you need to be doing, you're filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, He's going to prune you. Well, fantastic. Either way, I'm getting clipped. And that is how it is so often written. How how we we look at that, how Bible commentators across the board will say, you're either going to be purged, you're going to be cut off. If you're fruitless, you are fodder for the fire. Or you're going to be pruned, chopped up. So even if you're fruitful, you're still going to get clipped so you can grow more. Now, you know, you can make a case for that, that, that the Lord uses the tragedies and the difficulties and the sorrows and He prunes us through the process. Okay, you can do that, but I don't believe He's talking about cutting off outsiders and clipping up insiders. Why? Because Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So he's talking about those who are in him. He takes away. He takes away. Well, that sounds pretty clear. And, and, and in a moment, it's going to talk about verse 6 that, you know, the branch dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire. So that, that's pretty compelling, isn't it? The, the word takes away in the Greek is iro. And iro in the Greek can mean to take away, to cause to cease. It can mean that. It can also mean to be lifted up. How do you know how to use it? The context. Context determines the meaning. So let me ask you this. Drive around the Skagit Valley and look at some of the Washington vineyards that are just right here in the valley and tell me where are the vines? Where are the vines? They're on trellises. They're lifted up. Vineyard owners, vine dressers know you get those those trellises and you wrap the vines around those. You keep them up off the ground. You lift them up. Because if they're on the ground, it's hot on the surface of the ground. It's muggy on the surface of the ground. They can be buried by other vines, not get the sun they need, not get the oxygen flow they need, and so have trouble bearing fruit. And any vine dresser understands that. And in the Middle East, what they would do is they'd come along and they would lift fruitless, droopy vines up off the ground to get more oxygen, more sun, and therefore become fruitful. Every branch in me, every branch in me, Jesus says, that doesn't bear fruit, He takes away or 
he lifts up. Why would he do that? So that it will bear more fruit. In fact, what they would do, they didn't really have trellises as much in Israel. They had rocks. So they would lift up the branch on the rock so that it could be closer to the sun. (laughs) Think about that picture. The branch lifted up, were the branches, on the rock to be closer to the sun. To get the sunlight and the nutrition and the oxygen flow that is necessary for fruitfulness. And that's what the Lord is more likely to do with you if you are being fruitless in your life. He's going to lift you up. He's going to bear you up. He's going to prop you up. Put you in a position where you can get more sunlight, more oxygen, more of the breath of the wind of the Spirit so that you can start to bear fruit. Every branch that's not bearing fruit, let's lift it up and give it a shot. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about purging, but propping. And the second word there is prunes. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And the actual translation of that word prunes, the translators go there because it seems to be a contextual thing. But the word is kathairo. And kathairo literally means to wash. To wash or clean. And the same word is used in the very next verse, verse 3. You are already clean, kathairo, because of the word which I have spoken to you. You're clean by the word. Every branch bearing fruit, you know what he does? He keeps washing it. He keeps watering it. He keeps cleaning it so that it can continue to do what it's doing, which is bear fruit. Every branch not bearing fruit, he lifts it up so that it can receive the nutrition it needs to bear fruit. These are the branches that are in me, Jesus says, in Christ. Ephesians 5.25 Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed Katharizo from the same root word of Kathairo so that he might cleanse her by the washing of water with the with the what? With the word. Right, with the word. What does he say in verse 3? You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. It's the Word that cleanses. It's the Word that washes. It's the Word that continues to keep us clean that we might bear fruit. And what I believe Jesus is saying here is we're not cut off and chopped up and purged and pruned. We're lifted up and washed. We're propped up and cleansed. Jesus says that's what the vine dresser does. That's the work of my Father, the vine dresser. You just abide in the vine. You just stay connected. When you're down there on the ground, you're feeling droopy and hot, and you're not really doing your hot mess on the ground, He props you up to get the airflow you need. It's beautiful. Okay, but what about those who are thrown away and burned? Well, again, I pointed out the difference. In verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that is not bearing fruit, or bearing fruit, this is what the vine dresser does. Now he talks about those who do not abide in me in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. There's a very clear distinction here. The branches who are not in him and the branches who are in him. Those who are in him are not cast out. It's those who are not in him. Those who do not abide in Him that are cast out and burned in the fire. And I would call this number three in our travel here, the waste of dead branches. The waste of dead branches. 
They're tossed in the fire and they're burned. You know, the world is going to burn you. I've had this conversation with my older children more times than I can remember. The world is going to burn you. Life is going to knock you down. And when the world is done with you, tired of you, it's going to cast you out. And you will end up burned up, burned out, seared, charred, and scorched. That's what the world has for you. If you want to go that route, you can do that. You can make that decision. Just know you're going to get fried. Because the world has little or no use for you whatsoever. The same warning, by the way, is given to the nation of Israel. Keep your finger there in John 15 and go back to Ezekiel 15. John 15, Ezekiel 15. Interesting parallel. Ezekiel 15, we hear the the warning given to Israel. And remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, Israel is an example for us. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What happened to them, we need to look. We need to learn from. We need to understand. And God has not given up yet. Well, you'll see that. Ezekiel 15, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Can men make a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? We're talking about the branch of the vine, okay? The wood of the vine. If it has been put into the fuel for fire, or into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both of its ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it, and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? What's he saying? He's saying typical wood has many uses. You know, furniture, fasteners, and fuel. You can build stuff with wood. It's useful. But the wood of the vine that is dried up is absolutely useless. You can't build anything from it. You can't take the the twisted, gnarled branches of a vine. You you can't use it for a peg on which to hang your hat. It'll just fall off the wall. It's not strong enough. Vine branches, when they're cut off, dry paper thin. And they just blow away. They're worthless even as fuel because they burn up too fast. You you can't maintain any kind of heat with the vine branches that are dried up. And so Ezekiel, continuing on, verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I have set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. And that's exactly what happened. They went through the fire of Babylonian captivity. Israel, Jerusalem, literally burned to the ground. You know the stories. And they went into captivity, but they came back. They survived that fire. They came back. Guess what happened in AD 70? Jerusalem's burned to the ground again, a second time. And after that, the Jewish people dispersed throughout all the world... And Israel itself became an absolute desolation. For almost 1900 years, a desolation. 
sounds pretty hopeless. Have you been to Israel lately? Have you seen it? Have you walked the streets of Jerusalem modern day? It's thriving. It's alive. It's returning. It's bearing fruit. It's sprouting. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like a fig tree in the summertime. And it's green and it's putting forth its leaves. And Jesus says, you know, when that happens, you know the summer is near. And it says, so it is that uh, with this generation, all these things will not have, this generation will not pass away before all these things happen. Remember Matthew 24? And Jerusalem and Israel is thriving. Skip ahead in Ezekiel to chapter 39. I just want you to hear the end of this process and what God has in mind for Israel. Verse 28, Ezekiel 39, verse 28 says, Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will not leave I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer. For I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. I'm not going to leave them out there anymore. I'm going to gather them home. You see, the vine dresser is a gatherer of grapes. And that's what the Lord God will do with and for Israel. Because Israel had the distinction of being the chosen people through whom we could see all of these examples and understand and learn. And God has a faithful plan, as we've talked about many times, for Israel. Back to John 15. The work of the vine dresser. The waste of of the vine that's burned up. And now, verse 7 John 15, verse 7, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. All a dead, droopy, dried-out, fruitless branch needs is, number four, the words of the vine. The words of the vine, or what I would call vinwards. Vineyards, vinwards. Just put a W in there and you're good to go. Vine words, vin words, the words of the vine. Remember, the Lord God speaks life into existence. He is the one who created. He is the one who spoke and it came to be. Jesus is the one who said, Lazarus come forth and life entered Lazarus and he came forth alive and lived. John 6.63 tells us, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words of the vine are life. The words of the vine. And Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Comparing that to what he already said in John fourteen thirteen, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But as he clarifies here, he's not talking about us asking for anything. He's talking about us asking with right motives. That if my word abides in you, ask me anything. And I will do it. Why? Because if His Word is living and breathing and and alive in me, what I ask, what I want, is going to be by Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, and in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen? Amen. It's His Word that gives life. 
It's I hope why you're here tonight. Why you keep showing up. Wednesday after Wednesday to hear His Word. Because His Word is Spirit. And it's life. And by the way, note the connection between this and and verse 8. He says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. Put the two together. Abide in Me. My words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done. And My Father is glorified in this, that you're bearing fruit. Proving again to be My disciples. Listen, without His abiding words, we struggle to pray. Without prayer, we can't be fruitful. And without fruitfulness, we don't glorify God. Let me say that again. Without His abiding words, prayer is difficult. If you wonder why, I just I just struggle to pray. I can't come up with anything. You need more time in His Word. You need more of His Word alive in you, because the more His Word is in you, the more you're going to pray His Word, which is His desire in the first place. That He gives us prayers to pray via His Word. Without His abiding words, we struggle to pray. Without prayer, we cannot be fruitful. And without fruitfulness, gang, we do not glorify God. Let's clarify for a moment the beautiful singing that took place here during worship tonight. And I have the best seat in the house. I get to sit between Joel and Maddie. And listen, I love it. It's like, it's glorious. You too. I'm not trying to give the two of you the big head. And if you walk in here and can't get through the door because your head's too big, I'm going to deny I ever said any of this. But no, I go home and tell Cheryl, I just love it. The harmonies and this thing. I'm just like, ooh. I have the best seat in the house. Guess what? That is not what glorifies God. But Rick, we were worshiping. I know that. But what brings glory to God is fruitfulness. Now, if in your worship you are expressing to Him love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, I don't think I got them in the right order, but you know what I'm saying? If the fruit is sprouting as we're worshiping, yes, you're being fruitful in worship. But we cannot glorify God without fruitfulness because it's fruitfulness that glorifies God, as Jesus says. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And that senior pastor of mine was wrong. It's not the number of people who are sitting in the pews. That's not the fruit. The fruit is in our lives. The fruit is being born by the Spirit in us. And the more it's born in us, the more God is glorified. Why? Because He's the one doing it. He's the one growing the fruit. It's His Spirit at work. Which is why Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Fruit, glory. As when an apple tree bears tons of apples, you know what it's doing? It's glorifying God. Why? Because it's doing what it was created to do. And in the same way, you and I, when we are glorifying God through fruitful lives in the name of Jesus, we are doing what we were designed to do. What we were made to do. We've been over this. We were created to worship. That is the divine design for all of mankind. That is us at our absolute best. We are never more aligned with our created purpose than when we are bringing glory to God. Through fruitful lives. That's why we are here more than any other reason. And the key to this, listen, the key to this is vinwards. It's the words of the vine in you. 
Note this. Back in verse 3, Jesus said, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The word for word there, logos. The Logos. The Logos is the whole whole deal. The Logos is the incarnate Christ. The Logos is the word, big picture. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. John 1, verses 1 and 2. He was in the beginning with God, and verse 3, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's the Logos. That's Jesus. Expressed to us, yes, in Scripture, but so much bigger even than Scripture. The Logos is Jesus Himself. But Jesus also said, not only you are clean because of the Word, the Logos I have spoken, but here in verse 7, He says, if you abide in Me and My words abide in you, words is remata. From the root word rima, which is the spoken word. Now, this is interesting to me because Jesus has just laid out both for the walk of faith. Both for the fruitful, spirit-filled person in life, the words of the vine, the spoken words, the remata. Jesus is saying, listen, if you abide in me, I'm going to keep speaking into your life. You have the logos. It's me. That's where your entire salvation is coming from. The logos, Jesus says. And in addition to that, abide in me, abiding in, literally in the Logos, and guess what you get? The Ramada, the spoken words, the ongoing speaking of Christ into your life. Now, let me clarify, it's not new revelation. It's revelation of who He is, of what He has already shown us. It may be more revelation to you and to me because we don't know all there is to know about Jesus, but it's not new revelation, it is completely in keeping with His Word. Written, which we've been over this, but let me remind you. The written word, the grapho, where we get our word graphic. Okay, Anything written, the scriptures, when you see the word scriptures in the Bible, it's the grapho. The logos is the whole deal. The rima is the spoken word. And all three are God's gift to you and to me. That we might bear fruit. That we might live fruitful lives. The spoken word, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. What does that mean? It means keep listening. It means you haven't heard it all yet. It means we don't know it all. We need to continue in his word, listening to his word. Jesus the vine is still speaking to and through the branches, into the lives of the branches, which is why Revelation 2 and 3, the church age, seven times Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Because the Spirit is still speaking to us. The Spirit is still leading us and guiding us with the rhema, the spoken word. In fact, skip down to the end of the chapter and look at verse 26. Jesus will say, when the Helper comes, the the paraclete, the paracletos, the comforter, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The dynamic spoken word of the Spirit of Jesus. Always in perfect harmony with the grapho, the written word, and the logos, the word who is Christ. These are the vine words to the branches. And all three, again, are Jesus' gift to you. They are spirit, they are life to us, and without them we would dry up and waste away.
Verse 9. Jesus continues and He says, Just as the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you. Abide in My love. And if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, guys, eight times agape. From verse 9 through 13, agape, 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 Jesus says. Love, 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 unconditionally love. Eight times he says it. Seven times would have been cool because, you know, that's the number of completion in the Bible. You know what eight times is? Eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. You want a new life? Love. Love, 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 love. He says it eight times, and this brings me to the fifth point tonight, the wonder of His commands. The wonder of His commands. I want you to love, He says. Note this in verse 10. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. As a practical matter, Jesus slips what he said back in chapter 14. He actually says it, has, it says it the opposite way around. Chapter 14, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Which one is it? It's both. It works both ways. Well, okay, what's the difference? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So what's he saying here? In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We talked about this. It's the consequence of love. It's the outcome. Uh, Keeping his commandments is the simple result of loving him. If you love him, you're going to keep his commandments. Remember, he didn't say you must keep my commandments if you love me. He says if you love me, you will. It's just natural. Love me, and my commandments are going to flow in you, and you're going to keep them. So, John 14, 15 is the consequence of love. John 15, verse 10 is the cultivation of love. And this is so vital. Keeping His commandments will result in living and abiding joyfully in His love. So, Jesus comes at us two ways here. First, just love me. And the keeping of my commandments will be easy for you. But he's also saying, listen, if you want a practical way to deepen your love for me, keep my commandments. You want a a concrete way to, to go about cultivating this abiding, ongoing love for Jesus? Maybe you're sitting in church and you're just a little dry in the whole love area. You're just, you know, you're not that passionate about Jesus. A great worship song comes and goes and you're just kind of sitting there going, how many choruses are we going to do here? You need love, man. Well, how do I generate more love in myself? Listen, doing as He commands makes me love Him all the more. It's such a cool dynamic. Jesus gets us both ways. Love me, you're going to keep my commandments. If you're having trouble loving me, keep my commandments. And guess what? You're going to start loving me. And it works both ways. Isn't that awesome? So John 14.15 and John 15.10. Put those together and maybe put them on your bathroom mirror 
If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you're going to abide in my love. He's got us. And it's all about the love. And what did He command? Verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So here, here's the wonder of His commands. The wonder of Jesus' commands is not love. The wonder of Jesus' commands is joy. It's joy. That's the wonder. It's not a love that we work for and strive for and labor over. It's, man, I love Him. And so I'm doing what He said. And the more I do what I said, the more I love Him. And that just fills my heart with joy. That is the coolest thing. It makes me happier and happier and happier to be loved by Him, to keep His commandments, and to keep His commandments and be loving Him more. I just, I'm filled with this incredible joy. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Fullness of joy. He says in verse 11, that your joy may be made full. My love. Pat Delson. Is Pat here? I don't think, I didn't see her. I think Pat's right. Not here right now. Pat Delsono. Um, she has a labor of love. And it's the National Day of Prayer. She just loves that event. How do I know? Because for the last several years, long about January, I'm going to get a call from Pat. Rick, can you um, start to announce that the National Day of Prayer is coming? I'm like, Pat, it's January. The National Day of Prayer is in May. I can announce it, but no one's going to even think about it right now. It's all the way to you know, five months, four or five months. She's like, well, but please, would you just thought, okay, we'll let people know. And then she starts showing up around long about February with flyers. And about March, the phone calls begin to increase. And the closer we get to May, the more I'm seeing Pat Del Sano. She lives for this thing. God bless her. What a wonder. She just loves it. And you should have seen her face. Last Thursday night after the, the event there at, at Windjammer Park there is where we did the worship and prayer. It was a neat time. It was a great time together. But I'm walking out to the car with Pat. I made her carry my music stand. <laughs> We're walking out there together and she's just beaming. She's just beaming. And she said, Rick, this was just the greatest, I think this was the best national day of prayer we've had yet. And she spends hours on this thing, gang. Why? Well, she's keeping his commandments, she's loving his people, and she is joyful. And it's a great example to me. And I thought about her just today, about this whole idea. This is my commandment. Love one another. I I speak these things to you because I want your joy to be full. So the more we love Him, the more we keep His commandments. The more we keep His commandments, the more we love Him. And the more we love Him, the more we love His people. And the more we love His people, man, we're just overflowing in joy. He's laid out the easiest way for a church fellowship to be joyful and supportive of, of one another. Love me and love each other. And you're going to be so filled with joy, you're not going to have time to grouse and complain and be frustrated and 
get angry with people and be bothered by people's idiosyncrasies. And by the way, you all have a few. We're not going to... It doesn't become a problem for us because we're so filled with joy by the love of God in us. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends as Jesus is about to do. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Wait a minute. I thought I'd chosen. Nope. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he repeats, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. And here Jesus, think about this, is walking with his friends. His closest friends. And he's describing what real friendship is. And as they make their way across the Cadrone Valley that night, and he's talking about this, I am the vine, and, and he's taking them through all these things, and, and the wonder of his commands, and the joyful of following his commands, and just being in his love, he gives us number six, the welcome of friendship. The welcome of friendship. And for Jesus, it is both an immediate thing with his guys, and it is a future thing. Because he knew we would be reading this tonight. He breaks the fourth wall, as it were, and glances at us while we're studying. You know what that means, breaking the fourth wall? That's that's when you're watching a movie or something, and all of a sudden the actor looks at the camera and speaks to you directly, and then goes back into acting in the movie. That's breaking the fourth wall. Cartoons do it all the time. You know, Bugs Bunny will look at you and go, eh, you see that? And then go back into the whatever. Jesus is breaking the fourth wall here. He's talking about friendship, he's with his boys, but he looks across 2,000 years and he looks you in the eye, he looks me in the eye, and he says, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Which by the time you hear me say this, I will have done it 2,000 years ago for you. And he says, this is friendship. It's immediate for his boys, it's future for all those who would read and study and know these words and hear what he was saying. And John is so impressed by this, later on he wrote in 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for each other. Jesus lays out some conditions for this friendship. Wait, I thought you said it was agape, agape. Isn't that unconditional? Well, that's the problem. I read this and I see you are my friends if you do what I command you. How would that go over in your relationships? You meet someone for the first time and they enjoy spending time with you. And they say, hey, why don't we grab a cup of coffee? And you say, well, I'd love to get coffee with you and I'll be your friend if you do what I say. You obey me, we can be friends. You diss me, I'm out of here. That's the way it works. I mean, who would develop friends that way? And yet Jesus does give stipulations in this welcome to friendship. Four of them, quickly. He gives command, confidence, choice, and commitment. These are his four stipulations. You want to be my friends? Here are the four stipulations. Number one, we are welcomed as friends by command in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So commandments are part of the deal, right? 
But again, understand, this is the result, not the requirement of friendship with Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Do you you get that? Do you see the tie? Of course. If I'm doing what he commands, of course I'm his friend. But what he's doing is he's he's removing in the commands, he's removing the master-slave relationship and replacing it with a friend-to-friend relationship. He's saying, here are my commandments. Yeah, I want you to do these things. But because we're friends. And so we are welcomed by command. We need to understand this. 1 Corinthians 5.14 has become such an important verse to me. The NIV translates it, for Christ's love compels us. Which sounds great, but that's not what it says. The NASB translates it, for Christ's love controls us. And that's what it means. His love simply controls me, overwhelms me, surrounds me, causes me to want to do everything He says. I love Him so much. So, we're welcomed by friends as friends by command. We are welcomed as friends by confidence. Verse 15, again He says, No longer do I call you slaves. A slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. A friend is a confidant. A friend doesn't hold back. A true friend shares everything with his or her friend. And Jesus has done that. He has shared with us the mysteries by revelation of God Himself. He's not holding back. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, and gain the Spirit is Christ's. He, he tells us everything. We're welcomed as friends by confidence. We're welcomed as friends by command. Number three, we're welcomed as friends by choice, not yours, His. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's His choice. Which, by the way, doesn't usurp my choice. It just assures me that He has chosen me. You understand? I I chose to marry Cheryl, but guess what? She chose to marry me too. I didn't force her. It was her choice. It's my choice first. Because I saw her and I said, someday I'm going to marry that girl. But she chose me too. Remember, don't ever forget He chose you before you chose Him. Why is that so important? Because it completely bears up His love for me. I never have to question. I never wonder, what if I hadn't chosen Him? Would He kick me out? No, because He already chose you before you chose Him. Don't ever forget that. We're friends by choice. Why did He choose me? For what reason? That we would go, verse 16, and bear fruit that lasts. Meaning what? Sweet relationship. The sweet fruit of relationship. Go back to Galatians 5.22 and think this through. None of these things can happen outside of relationship. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these are aspects 
of a joyful relationship. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is about. God generates this, these characteristics in us, the fruit of the Spirit, and it increases the joy of our relationships. It increases our love one for another. The fruit of the Spirit is relational. It's relational fruit with Christ and with His people. Compare it to the faulty relationships that we have in humankind. You see, human relationships are ruined by disagreements. Messed up by departures. If you've ever had a close friend, move away. Destroyed by death. When we lose those who are close to us. But the fruit of the Spirit is eternal fruitfulness of love. Eternal relationships. Eternal with Jesus and eternal, yes, with each other. As I said on Sunday, we are going to heaven together. So if there's any contention, deal with it now because we're going. You're going to spend eternity with these people. First John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent us to be, or sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. First John 4, 19, We love because He first loved us. That was His choice. So we are His friends by command. We are His friends by, by choice. What was the second one? We are His friends by confidence, right? Because He takes us into His confidence. And finally, we are His friends by commitment. Verse 17, This is what I command you. Love one another. That is the command. All of this commandment, if you're going to be my friends, if you do what I command, what does He command? Love each other. And we are His friends. Now, at the end of this teaching in John 15, we come to a very stark contrast. He's talking about love and friendship and being connected to the vine and fruitfulness and it's beautiful. And he's talking about joy. But in stark contrast to this, he openly deals with, number seven, the way of the world. The way of the world, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. I was disappointed, to be honest, when the folks walked out on the teaching Sunday morning. If you were here first service, you saw that. It's only the second time, at least that I've been aware of in in a long time, that it's happened where I said something offensive, support of traditional marriage, and some people got up and walked out. Trust me, it wasn't walking out simply because it was time to go or they had an appointment or something. I know. But when that happened, in the moment that it happened, I was disappointed. I had to regroup spiritually. Right then I was, as I was speaking, I was talking to the Lord and saying, help me, you know, to get back. Because we're talking about heaven, right? I was so excited to bring Sunday's teaching because it was about the joy of heaven and eternity. And I rabbit trailed into talking about traditional marriage, which was important and which is part of the picture of heaven. And some people got up and left. 
And, and trust me again, I'm not paranoid. If, if you walk out in the middle of my teaching, I'm not going to assume automatically that I offended you. But I know in this case that these folks were offended. I won't get into that, but I know. And in the moment that it happened, I'm sitting there and I'm just going... It hurts. And it doesn't hurt me because it's not my word. It's not my truth. But it pains me when I see ears getting closed to truth. I think it pained a lot of people for a service because it got real quiet. The, the looks on your faces are, are almost comical. I, it should have brought me out just laughing right then because everyone's sitting around going... <laughs> person's leaving. Should I look? Don't look. Don't look. Don't look. Look at your Bible. <laughs> hey, you know what? People are going to be offended. People are going to leave. It's the way it is. The truth offends. The cross is an offense. And the truth is sometimes an offense. But my point is this. The reason there was a rejection there wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't that I said something rude or offensive or wrong. I was just saying what the Bible's definition of traditional marriage is and that we're going to stand on that. that it, very simple. When that kind of thing happens, hey, that's the way of the world. And when those rejections come, Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. And don't take it to heart. Do not let your heart be troubled. Because if someone is offended by you, if someone hates you, it's because they hated me first. The hatred is not of you, it's of me, Jesus is saying. That's the deal. James said, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He said, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So all of those nuns I was talking about, N-O-N-E-S, all of those unaffiliated, all of those who are walking away, are making themselves, tragically, I don't say this judgmentally, I say it tragically, making themselves an enemy to Jesus. Because they're desiring instead friendship with the world, tolerance with the whole world. Embracing any manner of everything out there, just because, man, I'm I'm part of the human race here. That's the deal. I'm human. Well, I am too, but I love God. And I want to be with the divine. The way of the world. Why is it that way? Because this world is under the authority of the adversary. Satan's name, adversary, who is set against God. And he has authority in this world. And if you want to be friends with this world, if you want to be part of this world, well, guess what? You are under his authority. And that breeds hatred for Jesus and for the things of Jesus. So you will be hated if you love Jesus. So prepare for that. Now, we've talked about this for years. We've considered the concept of persecution and martyrdom in the church and hardship in the church globally. And we know in some regions it's horrible for Christians right now. Do you know what? We in this country have been incredibly sheltered for a long, long time. We as Christians have had it easy. Has it been tough? Have you been persecuted for your faith? I read about being persecuted and I think... How hard is it to have someone walk out of your church? Whoa. That just laid me out, you know? Whew! Persecution! No, it wasn't. It wasn't persecution. We have been free to worship. We have been free to claim the name of Jesus. That freedom may be waning. 
And if we should be here longer, and if the Lord should tarry, we may see harder times. I, I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm not saying we will. I am very hopeful in the second coming of Jesus and in the calling home. I think it could happen any time. But Jesus prepares our hearts. Know that if you're hated as a follower of me, it's because of me. He says in verse 21, or verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all the things, all these things, they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. And that is the underlying reason for all Christian persecution of all time. Hatred for and of Jesus. In other words, it's Jesus' fault. (laughs) It's his fault. If we don't blame someone for being persecuted for your faith, it's Jesus' fault. It's that Jesus who I absolutely adore. He's the reason for the persecution. He's also the reason for them hearing you. If people hear the word, if they respond to the word, it's because of Him. If they deny or denigrate you, it's because of Him. You realize how central He is to the whole story? That's why it's called His story. Nobody likes to be hated. But in Paul's final letter to Timothy, he said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the meantime, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. So listen, even when the stats seem to continue their slide downward, even when things look bad for the future of Christianity in this country, if that is the case, listen, our faith continues reaching forward to what lies ahead. We continue to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Paul said, Philippians 3.14. And in verse 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not, listen to this, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, They would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. What does he mean, they would not have sinned? The Greek word for sin is hamartia, and hamartia means moral consequence and or guilt. It makes absolute sense. Jesus said if I hadn't come, they wouldn't have sinned. They wouldn't have guilt. They wouldn't feel bad about what they're doing. Why? Let me read this to you very quickly. John 3, 19. And I need like two more minutes, so stay with me. John 3, 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So Jesus called it out right there and talking to Nicodemus. That's the deal. People are going to hate it because I'm going to come into the world. I'm going to do these marvelous works. I'm going to speak these wonderful words. And if you hear me and you respond to me, joy. But if you reject me, it's like God's flashlight. I mean, it is a beaming light into the darkness and everyone in the darkness is going to feel like they're being exposed and they're going to hate me for it. 
And that's what he's talking about. There is a deep hatred for light in the darkness. Fear of exposure. Because conscience is hardwired into humanity. Verse 25, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What happens here is the son of David reaches all the way back to a psalm of David. It's Psalm 69, verse 1. Turn there. Psalm 69. We will end there tonight. Psalm 69. About in the middle of your Bible. Jesus says this is in the law. The law, when Jesus speaks of it, encompasses all of the Hebrew Scriptures. The whole thing. This is in their law. This is in Psalm 69, verse 1. Listen to this. First of all, it's for the choir director, according to Shoshanim, a psalm of David. What's Shoshanim? It means the lilies. It's a type, we think, a type of music that was a sorrowful music. And David writes, Save me, O God, verse 1, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Verse 4, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Jesus quoted that exactly. They have hated me without a cause. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is You who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from You. May those who wait for You not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek You not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for Your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers." An alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. What? Wait, who's talking here? David or Jesus? Psalm 69 is a prophetic psalm. David wrote it inspired by the Spirit of Christ. These are Jesus' words in this psalm. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Skip down to verse 15. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Skip down to verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick, and I look for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Note this, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. What did they give Jesus on the cross? Vinegar and gall. What's gall? A painkiller? And Jesus rejected it. They put it on a stick and lifted it up to Him. Typically they would give it to people being crucified because it would solve enough of the pain that they could hang a little longer on the cross, thus making the the punishment last longer. Jesus said no. He felt every stab of pain. He would not have anything take away the pain. And for my first thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Skip on down, verse 29. I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. It will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. Why? Because that was sacrifice and Jesus became the more pleasing sacrifice than any animal sacrifice could ever be. 
The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise those his does not despise his who are prisoners. Now listen to the way this ends. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in him, in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell in it. The sorrowful psalm of Jesus and the, the suffering that he would go through ends with his joy of our dwelling with him in heaven forever. And as Christianity is clarified in this country, and as the lines are drawn and persecution rises, just two things to remember. Remember where we're going. And remember how we are to live. Jesus has just described it. I would call it number eight, the walk of the Spirit. This is not just the walk across the Cadrone. This is the walk of the Spirit. Again, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Paul put it this way, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We're not judge, we're not jury, we just testify. And we testify as branches because we are connected to the vine. I am the vine, he says. I am the vine. You are the branches. So for you, for me, stay connected and branch out with the vine words of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word tonight. And we pray now that as branches connected to the vine, we would be enriched and enlivened. That we would receive, Lord, the nutrition of Your words and Your Spirit flowing from You into us. And Father, if we're scrunched up and drooping on the ground, lift us up. Prop us up, Lord. That we might become more fruitful. And for all those who are fruitful among us tonight, Lord Jesus... Wash us with the Word again and again that we might continue in fruitfulness. In Jesus' name, Amen.